Hi everyone, my name is Ian McLaughlin and I'm a, still a PhD student in neuroscience at the University of Pennsylvania. And as ever, I'm joined by Bo, scientist and co-host extraordinaire. Hello. And so today, we're talking about the relationship between genetics and behavior. Oh, okay. Well, before we get there, I doubt you'll bring it up if I don't. So you had a pretty good science week a while ago, right? Yeah, that's right. And you had an experiment that just totally worked out yeah i mean it was so it was a side project that i've been um helping out with for like um, honestly i you know i'm not gonna lie for like two and a half years <laughs> wow why so long yeah uh so it was for a number of kind of technical reasons that i cannot possibly imagine would be interesting to anyone outside of neuroscience and even then probably only people who do immunohistochemistry would be interested in the details okay um, how, how about you just give us the abbreviated story yeah. okay so the short story is is this. Um, so we know that not everyone finds nicotine addictive, um, and you know nicotine and of course cigarettes and and you know e-cigs and so on, and a large number of people find them altogether repulsive and devoid of any reward at all. However, even among the people that enjoy the effects of nicotine, from you know again cig- cigarettes or cigars or, or hookahs, um, not everyone is equally susceptible to finding them addictive. Okay, so we're talking about genetic predispositions to addiction here, right? Yeah. Uh, Which we should note, we also discussed in a past episode. That's right. And it was actually across two episodes about whether addiction is a disease or a disorder. Yeah, and so we go into the details there, but suffice it to say that we know some people are genetically predisposed to becoming addicted to nicotine. We even know some of the genes that can predict who some of those people might be. So in our lab... One of the questions we're asking is why this particular gene might cause people to be predisposed to nicotine addiction, right? What's it doing in the brain? How does it change neurons? And how was this recent experiment successful? Well, to answer how this gene changes the brain, uh, here's one set of experiments we can do. Um, So first, we have a mouse that doesn't have this particular gene in their genome. It's totally absent. So first, we can get an idea of how this gene contributes to the brain by seeing how the brain works when it's gone. Kind of like how neuroscientists learn about how the hippocampus regulates memory by seeing what happened to people when they had their hippocampus removed. And is it hippocampi or hippocampuses? (laughs) No, it's just hippocampus. (laughs) But yeah, that's exactly right. So uh, Henry Molson, probably one of the most famous cases in neuroscience, better known as HM, Um, has his hippocampus and some additional structures removed due to fairly severe epilepsy. And as a result, we made massive strides towards understanding how the hippocampus is important to certain forms of memory. Well-remembered, by the way. Yeah, that's right. I didn't just study math and material (laughs) science. Took a bio course or two. (laughs) Nice, yeah. So, um, great comparison. So, So by removing this particular gene that's involved in predisposing people to nicotine addiction, we can see how the brain and behavior change when it's gone. But, Then we can go a step further. We can design viruses that enable us to deliver that gene to very specific parts of the brain. Ah, Okay, which then I'm guessing enables you to see what happens to behavior when the gene is present in only those specific regions. Right. And the experiment is is actually a fair bit more complicated than that, involving different versions of the gene. Um, But we can ask what happens to behavior when the gene is absent or present in only a select few brain regions. We can also see how specific cells in specific brain regions behave in the absence of the gene, or when only certain versions of the gene are present. And that involves sticking an electrode into specific neurons and recording how they become more or less active when exposed to various drugs. 
Like nicotine. That's right. Like nicotine. Or, by the way, alcohol or morphine or fentanyl. Um, anyways, after we listen in on those neurons, we then have to use a microscope to prove three things. First, we have to identify the specific single neuron from which it recorded among the 71 million in the mouse brain. Second, we have to prove that the neuron is a specific kind of neuron, right? Is it a GABA-releasing neuron or is it a dopamine-releasing neuron? And then third, we have to prove that our virus successfully infected the neuron. Sounds easy enough, right? Okay. <laughs> no, but if I understand correctly, you do this sort of thing all the time. So what made this so much harder? That's right. Um, and there are a number of things that made this a bit more difficult. Um, but the main thing was that the tissue um, had to be quite thick. And so I ended up having to use um, a technique that clears away much of the brain tissue while leaving behind just the neurons, pretty much. So you made a clear brain? I mean, sort of, yeah. I mean, and... That's sort of the short way to say it. Uh, the images are quite beautiful, um, and unfortunately, I can't post the main ones. That'll be um, in the study because journals won't accept them if I post them online. But I'll post one of the images that's um, part of the experiment that looks kind of like lightning. Anyways, it's pretty neat. Um, but yeah, because all of those moving parts and the number of people involved in the experiment, it just took so much longer than normal. Well, congrats. Thank you very much. <laughs> Actually, uh, this experiment is kind of similar to the topic we're going to discuss today. The experiment I did um, was related to the question of what and how genes predisposed people to addiction. There's a much smaller body of research, though perhaps equally provocative, if not quite a bit more so, that focuses on how heritable a person's politics might be. Politics being heritable? Yeah, um, from political ideology to party affiliations. So basically, whether people can inherit their political ideology. That's right. And further, how the basic biology underlying our ideologies might be intentionally manipulated to get people to vote in particular ways to support a party or a candidate. Wow. Okay. So it's going to be another creepy episode. Uh, yeah, I think so, for sure. <laughs> um, and I'll be honest up front. When it comes to the sort of perennial nature versus nurture debate, I think I tend to be a bit more instinctively accepting of nature-based arguments than most people intuitively are. No, Not that everything is driven by genetics, but that they likely play a bigger role than would be expected. Which we talked about in the addiction episodes. That's right. Though, on the other hand, I think that within biomedical science, I actually tend to be among a camp that perceives a bit more of a role for nurture. That the environment and life experiences play a greater role in sculpting our consciousnesses or consciousness, and, and behavioral predispositions quite a bit more than many biomedical scientists or even neuroscientists specifically. Okay, so compared to your average bear, you're more <laughs> of a nature type of guy, you know, compared to people outside of science. But compared to people within science, you're actually more of a nurture type of guy. Right. That's a good way to put it. And so I'll be honest. I approached this topic with a pretty substantial level of skepticism. I became interested in the topic because of an article in MIT Tech Review about consultants who use some techniques in psychology and neuroscience for politicians. The article was pretty solid and appropriately skeptical. But our earlier episode on how facial perception influences candidate selection made me wonder if a field like neuropolitics might exist. Yeah, so that was our fourth episode, right? Uh, called yeah. What's in a Face? Right, right. And so does neuropolitics exist? Sort of, um, yeah. But, but it's not nearly as robust a field as ones like neurolaw or neuroeconomics, both of which are also fairly diminutive relative to the broader fields in neuroscience. But they have their own meetings and conferences and departments, you know, at, at institutions. And as far as I'm aware, no such things exist for politics, at least not yet. 
There is, however, some writing on the topic, some of which focuses on those consultants that purport to leverage neuroscience to amplify the reach of a political campaign, as well as some books and reviews. But the field doesn't have a bunch of neuroscientists who are doing research into politics. That's right. Um, And I suppose it's worth noting that if you live in the United States and are 18 years or older, you should remember to vote on November 6th in just a few days. (laughs) While the rest of our conversation uh, may make it seem like a lot of this is a bit of a foregone conclusion, it's still worth making sure you're participating in the system that makes the United States of America the United States of America. And don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. (laughs) It's basically the main way that people find podcasts, and we certainly appreciate your time. Yes, thank you for bringing that up. Um, But yeah, uh, anyways, probably because the potential topics in a field that straddles both biology and politics would range so widely, it seems like a lot of the work on the topic approach it from pretty variable angles. Different angles of science? Yeah, uh, but also different angles of politics. Like, like for example, I'm making my way through a book that focuses on how the relationships between the brain and media can influence politics. Or, you know, there are reviews of psychology and sociology research that sort of repurposes the work to extract any potential political relevance it might have. Oh, okay. So studies that weren't conducted with politics in mind, but speak to politics on some level. Yeah. And while I couldn't find all that many broad reviews on the topic, I could find a handful from several um, years ago, which have since been cited by hundreds or or you know, hundreds of, of studies that focus in on more granular details. Granular in what way? Like, okay, so for example, rather than asking a broad question like, can genetic traits be inherited? There are studies that ask very specific questions, like, for example... What are the fundamental factors that determine public attitudes about international debt disputes? Or how levels of education tend to influence a person's political ideologies? Or have how having siblings influences political attitudes? Oh, like more targeted questions. Yeah, exactly. All right. So it sounds like we have two broad topics to discuss. Uh, first is the relationship between genetics, the brain, and political ideology. And the second is how these consultants are manipulating (laughs) or maybe at least trying to manipulate our minds to get us to vote in particular ways. Yeah, yeah, that that's what I had in mind. I mean, there's much more to discuss when it comes to the heritability of political traits than the emergence of this class of consultants. So so that'll be most of what we discuss. But I think it might be worth discussing some of the origins of this field to get an idea of what led to these questions in the first place. All right, let's get started. So when I think about this topic, I mean, I don't know, I guess there are, I I kind of feel like these types of questions seem to be coming up a lot more frequently recently than I remember maybe just a few years ago. I actually completely agree with you on that, uh, particularly when it comes to intelligence. You mean how much of a person's intelligence comes from the genes that they inherit from their parents? Yeah, exactly. For for some reason, I feel like there's a ton of people interested in that topic all of a sudden. And, and we've even started um, to see people who participated in these debates literally decades ago become prominent again. What do you mean? I mean, literally, the, the people who debated how heritable things like intelligence are in the 90s are going on college speaking tours and podcast interviews and stuff, discussing the same lines of evidence that they discussed back then at the time. Okay. Yeah, that's a little weird, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. There's nothing objectively wrong about that or anything. But yeah, just kind of get the sense, the the same sense that you're bringing up, right? That there's a feeling of renewed vigor to the nature versus nurture debate about um, intelligence. Okay, well, let's jump right in. Do we inherit (laughs) our political parties? Well, okay, so that's, that is actually an answered question, or at least an answerable question. 
I was actually sort of joking, but you're about to blow my mind. <laughs> well, yeah, I know. So, so there actually are ways that we can at least try to answer that question. And more broadly, how much of our political ideology is inherited genetically versus how much of it we learn from our experiences in our environment? Like how much our parents' political parties and ideologies sculpt our own? Well, I mean, honestly, my assumption, and I think a lot of people's assumptions, would be that your parents have a huge effect on your political ideologies. Intuitively, I totally agree with that expectation. But it turns out that it's pretty important to distinguish between two very similar and related but different things. You mean between a political party and what you're calling political ideology? Yeah. Okay, so in other words, distinguishing between someone calling themselves a Republican and that same person believing that, say, having a strong military is a priority. Yeah, that's right. And, and they may totally be related, maybe even seem inseparable. Um, but in other words, it, it may seem like someone calls themselves a Republican because they believe in having a strong military. But in terms of identifying what the dominant factors are that determine whether someone considers having a strong military as being more important than something like having cheap or, or free health care for all, um, requires that we separate that consideration from things that determine whether someone's likely to identify with a political party. Okay, so it's basically separating the things that determine a person's ideology from the reasons someone joins the Democratic or Republican Party. That's exactly right. So so going forward, we're, we're usually going to be talking about the, the heritability of political traits and not party. Um, but anyways, it, it's kind of an interesting situation because, as I, was, as I was saying, while the field itself isn't very densely populated and there's not a, a whole ton of active research, there's a cottage, cottage industry of those consultants, right, leveraging technologies that the, the, the researchers themselves actually do use. Okay, just really quickly before we move on, I think I, you know, it is really cool that this research focuses on the political traits as opposed to some sort of self-identifying label because I can see how it the traits are what would be reproducible. Well, I mean, it's just different data sets, right? So so we're talking about when it comes to ideology, we're talking about, you know, uh, beliefs, right, as opposed to tribal affiliation. Um, and there is research that focuses on how people uh, uh, affiliate. Um, and we're going to talk about some, some of that. Um, but, but yeah, it's just different aspects of a very closely related thing. Okay, so what are the services that these consultants are offering? Well, it's still kind of a new landscape. Um, the companies haven't existed for all that long, but we're talking about using technologies like facial coding or biofeedback and brain imaging, all of which have actually been used for a while now in, in marketing and product development but are now increasingly being used by consultants. By candidates for their campaigns to boost their chances of winning, I imagine. That's right. So what are they using these technologies to do? Well, some of the consultancies will claim that the more standard arsenal is filled with less effective weapons. You know, things like focus groups and surveys can be unreliable because voters often don't know or, or they can't explain or actually just apprehensive and being honest about how they really feel about candidates. I remember you saying that People are actually pretty bad at explaining or understanding why they do the things they do. Right. I mean, it's sort of wild how bad we are at understanding some of the most intimate aspects of our lives. But but anyways, the top three marketing research firms in the world, which are Nielsen, Cantor, and Ipsos, do actually use neuromarketing research. And they're open about the use of these techniques. But interestingly, they all have policies against doing so for political clients. That's interesting. Is there a reason in particular, or is it just because they see it as unethical? You know, I'm not sure. 
But just because the big guys don't do it doesn't mean that you can't find a firm of scientists who are willing to use these dark arts to help sell your campaign. Do you have an example of these firms? I do. So, so for example, um, Dr. Jaime, I, I imagine, or, or Jamie Romano uh, Micah, or Mika, um, a, neuro, uh, a neurophysiologist from Mexico, has spent many years in neuroscience and in the clinic. And according to Dr. Micah, um, Mexico's governing party hired his firm, called Neuropolitica, in the run-up to the 2012 national election to figure out if there were opportunities to make Peña Nieto's campaign more appealing to Mexican citizens. Interestingly, a facial coder in the U.S. named Dan Hill um, said that the Peña Nieto uh, campaign also commissioned him to analyze the facial expressions of Mexican voters and candidates during debates. Wow. So it sounds like the Peña Nieto campaign was going deep on these methods. Yeah, and, and well, so both Dr. Romano, Micah, and Dan Hill suggested that uh, Peña Nieto uh, ought to take the candidate who is running to his left um, on the political spectrum as a more substantial challenge to the one on his right. And it turned out that Peña Nieto won the national vote by six percentage points over that candidate to the left, and the conservative candidate finished third. So they predicted how the vote would likely turn out. Or at least that the candidate to his left would do better than the candidate to to his right. Exactly. What about in the U.S.? Of course. So, so of course, you know, there was that example that's become fairly infamous at this point of the firm, Cambridge Analytica, who did types of research that likely could be considered as falling into this category. Yeah, that was the name of the firm that was using a ton of Facebook data that they got via questionable ways (laughs) to basically advise on how to more effectively reach voters with campaign messaging. That's right. And it was, by the way, headed up by a British guy with the name out of a James Bond movie, Alexander Nix. Cousin of Dr. New. Yeah, exactly. Uh, But anyways, okay, so Cambridge Analytica was in the UK. And um, according to a New York Times article by Kevin Randall, the landscape for these types of consultancies has consolidated into just a few large research firms. While in Latin America and Europe, there are more small, uh, small startups that can be a bit more agile and competitive. And so there's been more significant growth in uh, neuromarketing outside of the U.S. Well, that's interesting. So what are some of these other firms? Okay, so there's Emotion Research Lab in Spain. And there's a story of a pretty wild method uh, that they used. It's very kind of 1984 or like... Brave New Worldish. That's not particularly comforting. Yeah. So, okay. So, you know, um, when you see those billboard type campaign materials, like, you know, probably with the candidate's face along with some language, you know, like their policies or their party or, or whatever. Of course. Okay. So this firm placed cameras in digital versions of these things that actually measured and analyzed the facial reactions to campaigns as people looked at them while walking by. Wow. I know, right? Definitely creepy, like yeah, Big Brother creepy. Exactly, and so so they did basically automated facial coding for a bunch of Mexican candidates, and then another firm, Neuroom, um, a Polish company, has reportedly advised campaigns in the United States over several election cycles. Oh, okay, so it's not like campaigns here in the U.S. haven't used these methods. That's right. So more on that later. But um, to to fill out our list, there's a Brazilian guy named Paulo um, Moura who's evidently used these techniques for Russian campaigns. Then there's NeuroDiscover, found by um, someone from Turkey, whose name would be just absolutely demolished by me trying to pronounce it. But he evidently worked for the governing party in Turkey's 2015 election. Okay, so it definitely seems like it's used internationally more than in the U.S. Or no? 
Well, I mean, I get the feeling the candidates are just a bit cagier about it in the U.S., but um, there's a quote from David Pluff, who was Obama's um, former campaign manager, who kind of developed this this reputation of being kind of like a campaign genius or like an oracle because of the various novel methods that he used. But so um, Pluff said, quote, the tools would be new ground for political campaigns. The richness of this data compared to what is gathered today in testing ads or evaluating speeches and debates, which is the truly old dial test and primitive qualitative methods, is hard to comprehend. It gets more to emotion, intensity, and a more complex understanding of how people are reacting. But the horrendous dial ratings at the bottom of televised presidential debates may now be replaced with the only thing worse, sweat, eye, and cardiac monitoring measurements of key voter segments. Yeah, I can definitely see that being used. Uh, You get to watch like the average heart rate that's taken from a focus group of various voters who are watching the debate, like the NBC green room or whatever. Yeah. So it seemed, you know, pretty viable to me too, but, um, but yeah, it does seem that American campaigns are pretty apprehensive to admit um, using any of these services. And in fact, Roger Dooley, a consultant himself has said, uh, quote, it's rare that a campaign would admit to using neuromarketing techniques, though it's quite likely the well-funded campaigns are. And further, Fred Davis, a Republican strategist who's worked for George W. Bush, John McCain, and Elizabeth Dole, um, said its use is going to be inevitable once they can demonstrate that they can provide uh, a strategic edge. Totally makes sense. Yeah. And so um, so it seems like a lot of these firms are still pretty nascent. Like, for example, some groups use eye trackers, orbital electrodes, galvanic skin responses, and so on to measure where the eyes of people in a focus group move while they watch campaign ads. And then the the data collected can be used to influence targeted demographics. Like, you know, so for example, if firms collect data that suggests that conservative women over 50 years old tend to respond significantly to ads about illegal immigration, campaigns can then craft ads that stoke that fear about that specific issue instead of other issues to make sure you're you're getting the intended emotional response. Right. So again, it's like uh, targeted focus groups that are trying to get down to the aspects of how people respond to ads in ways that they themselves probably don't even know. Exactly. But even crazier is that one of the firms I mentioned will offer real-time crowd reactions during a campaign speech. So imagine, given how many uh, candidates use those like glass speech panel things on either side of their podium, you know, when they're giving speeches, imagine if a campaign was tracking the real-time reactions of a crowd to their speech. Their campaign speech writers could then modify, like in the background, the speech in real time to amplify a desired reaction, including certain phrases or keywords to induce more significant reactions as the speech is progressing. That's super crazy. It's like using computers to make such a fundamentally human thing, which is basically just reading a crowd way more effective. That's right. And so interestingly, some of these firms were predicting that Hillary Clinton was going to lose the election well before the election actually happened. Well, that's pretty cool since the vast majority of the polls suggested she was going to win. That's exactly right. So this one firm used a survey of 900 people, and um, they were measuring how long people deliberated before answering questions. And so here's a quote. When we measure the hesitation level, we can see that some answers are positive but with hesitation, and some are positive and instantaneous. We measure how how much you deviated from baseline. The deviation is key. End quote. And so it turned out that when this firm asked questions about like whether Hillary Clinton shared people's values, people often hesitated for a long time before responding. And it's been established that a shared or a sense of shared values is important to motivate people to vote, and certainly in 2016. That's like another one of those things 
that we aren't really consciously aware of that can sort of reveal a part of our mind that isn't obvious to us. Exactly. And and we should note that there's definitely a substantial contingent of scientists who are deeply skeptical of how effective these methods can possibly be. In fact, one of the scientists that we'll discuss in greater detail later himself cautions against putting too much faith in these techniques, saying that it's very easy to overbelieve in the abilities of these tools. Many scientists suggest that these firms are making claims that imply that these measurement methods are far more accurate at uh, measuring beliefs um, and so on than they really are. But anyways, I mean, I think it's safe to say that we can expect to be poked and prodded in ways that are completely inconspicuous to either try and predict how we're going to vote or even nudge us to vote in certain ways. Definitely pretty creepy. Okay, so moving forward. Is there a first neuropolitics researcher? It's kind of a funny way to put it, um, but it is worth thinking about. Um, so, so there's this really excellent review written by a guy named Darren Schreiber titled Neuropolitics 20 Years Later. Sounds pretty appropriate. Right. It's definitely an interesting read, um, particularly because he frames things in a historical context. Like, for example, um, here's a quote, quote, neuropolitics is a more recent manifestation of an inquiry into human nature stretching back thousands of years. Converging lines of evidence have shown that our engagement with and creation of the political world we live in are related to our human, our being human and having the brains that humans do. Our brains appear built for politics, a consequence of a three million year old cognitive arms race propelled by a need to manage our increasingly dynamic social complexity. End quote. Huh, okay. I mean, it sounds like he's basically just saying that humans are social creatures and any study of the brain would have obvious implications for how humans interact with each other. Yeah, it's just sort of like in a fancy way. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, I think that's exactly the point he's making, that ever since humans have been interested in developing political power, they've been interested in the best ways to do so. And uh, Schreiber highlights that humans aren't the only example of political animals. Oh, okay. I mean, yeah, anyone who's had more than one dog knows that there's definitely a relationship between dogs. Like, uh, a dominant or a less dominant dog. Yeah, that that's right. We're talking about interactions that sort of reflect the political arrangements we've observed between humans and that we've seen them between like hyenas and even dolphins, which suggests that convergent evolution has resulted in independent examples of unusually complex brains as well as highly coalitional interactions between members of a species. Okay, so just like dogs, hyenas, and dolphins even have interactions over things like food, right? Yeah, basically. Okay. So apart from the relationships between animals, when did humans begin paying attention to the interactions between psychology and politics? Well, yeah. So that's what's so cool about the Schreiber review. So um, first of all, he highlights the fact that there's been um, a resistance to associating politics with the brain as a byproduct of the resistance against biological determinism in general. Which we discussed in a few of the past episodes, particularly the ones about whether addiction is a disease or a disorder. Yes, exactly. And and thanks for reminding everyone about that. Um, but that's exactly right. A lot of the resistance um, against accepting a role for biology to play in, in politics emerges from the horrors that occurred during World War II. Um, this resulted in a major de-emphasis of the role of biology in human behavior, which, summarizing a ton of theories of human behavior, largely minimized the role of emotional, biological, or even neurophysiological factors that might influence political decision making. So given where we are today, when was neurophysiology accepted into explanations of human behavior and decision making? 
Well, so by the 1970s, um, researchers did evidently begin asking political questions while considering biology. And, and some early um, examples of this type of research were Roger Sperry, a Nobel laureate, and, and, and his colleagues who looked into the attitudes of political figures in both hemispheres of uh, split brain patients. So I feel like we probably talked about what split brain means, but to briefly review, we're talking about people who've had like the middle part of their brain severed, usually maybe to treat some sort of super severe epilepsy, right? Yeah, that's right. And, and honestly, I don't know if we have talked about it before, so uh, nicely done. <laughs> well, I've definitely just heard you talk about it at some point before, but I'm happy to take that. <laughs> okay, well, fair enough. Um, so what we're talking about is the corpus callosum, um, that little region in, in the middle of the brain that you were talking about, which is really just an extremely dense patchwork of fibers that conveys signals from one hemisphere to the other, which you know effectively connects the two hemispheres of the brain. And so there have been some rudimentary studies in split brain patients measuring things like IQ and memory and motor skills that all suggested that there were Believe it or not, no significant changes following the procedure that severed their corpus callosum. Wow, that's pretty unexpected. Yeah, no kidding. So they were basically like, this part of the brain isn't too important. Let's get rid of it. <laughs> and uh, just basically uh, causes epilepsy. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it's tough to know. You know, this was literally in like the early 1940s that this kind of research uh, happened. Um, and the standards for neuroscience research back then weren't exactly established. But suffice it to say that it wasn't clear what this unusually dense network of white matter was doing. Okay, back to our Nobel laureate, Roger Sperry. He was studying these split brain patients. That's right. And, and by the way, anyone with an avid interest in neuroscience who doesn't recognize the name Roger Sperry may recognize the name Michael Gazzaniga, who's also a very prominent neuroscientist. Um, Gazzaniga was Sperry's PhD student, and they did some of the early cognitive neuroscience research with some clear political relevance. So Sperry had uh, been studying the role of the corpus callosum in animals, finding that it clearly played some role in various cognitive functions. And so in 1961, Roger Sperry had the opportunity to study the role of the corpus callosum in a human who had suffered some injuries in World War II after parachuting behind enemy lines. And Gazaniga was the grad student who was assigned the project. Wow, definitely a very intense PhD project. Yeah, I think so. Um, and so anyways, uh, among a bunch of things that they ended up studying, they evaluated how attitudes toward political figures in both hemispheres of the brain changed in split brain patients presenting a range of stimuli like uh, um, like foreign and domestic political leaders at one eye at a time, measuring if both hemispheres responded equivalently. Yep, that's pretty clearly neuroscience and politics. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't think it was even necessarily their intention. I, I think it was just a category of stimuli at the time, you know, that they thought of. And so, but, but anyways, that may be the first clear study of neuropolitics. So that's pretty basic. Like, do both hemispheres of the brain respond to the same political stimulus in the same way? For sure. Um, but since then, other studies have been done, right? And so, um, for example, a group showed that people who know quite a bit about national politics and follow it closely exhibit different patterns of um, brain activation than those who pay little attention to national politics, showing that those with little familiarity tended to respond um, to, to make political judgments similar to something like a mental coin flip, you know, with little intellectual effort and, and short response times. However, it took quite a bit longer to answer political questions um, than those who'd spend more time paying attention to those issues. Sort of like people who'd been paying attention to national politics had practice. I mean, yeah, so that's exactly actually what they compared it to, um, the way that practice and rehearsal affect cognitive response times. 
While those studies were going on, most of the cognitive neuroscience at the time was concerned with using the new technologies available at the time to study a fairly traditional you know, set of cognitive tasks. Sort of like using the new technologies to test theories based on studies that were done before the technologies were around. Exactly like that. Um, that's literally what they were doing. And it's kind of funny because I used to whine about how optogenetics and chemogenetics papers that... Wait, so optogenetics and chemogenetics are the techniques that you use in your research. Let's just keep everyone on the same page. Right. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so that's right. And, and these are basically techniques that became mainstream in neuroscience a few years before I started my graduate work. And I used to complain that people were getting publications in super prestigious journals for just showing things like the amygdala is important for fear learning, you know, or like the hippocampus is important for working memory. So basically just things that were fairly obvious to people in the field at the time. Yeah, exactly. And so, I, you know, I used to get so frustrated, largely because my project focuses on an area of the brain that fewer people study, right? And part of the reason that so few people study it is because it's a super dense, uh, small, and, and very subcortical region of the brain. And, you know, the broad functional role of this brain region has really yet to be established. Um, you know, part of it has, you know, for, for sure, but it's not like the amygdala or the hippocampus, both of which are like stadiums compared to like a smart car or like a longboard or something. Okay. In other words, the thing that you study is smaller than the amygdala. Yes. <laughs> and so we know less about it. That's right. Got it. Okay. So anyways, um, I've come to realize that it's it's a pretty natural and healthy progression in science. You know, we test both the new technology as well as the older theories against each other. We see what corroborates what and what refutes what and for what reasons. And that's how we move forward. And so there's nothing wrong with verifying that the amygdala is involved in fear using optogenetics. Yes, it, exactly. And so anyways, um, while a lot of those early cognitive neuroscience studies were evaluating older school theories of mind and philosophy and psychology, some of them touched on topics with political relevance. So, you know, some of them, some of the more obvious ones were questions like things, you know, like about moral judgment, for example. That makes sense. Yeah, like, you know, coupling cognitive neuroscience technologies with questions like the classic trolley problem. Oh, of course. Or uh, at least I think I remember that. Is that the one where you have to choose between like saving five people and allowing one person to die? That's pretty much it. Yeah. Okay. So basically you have to imagine that you're standing in front of a lever that controls the direction that a runaway train is going to take. It can either hit five people or it can hit one person, but you know, it's definitely going to hit one or the other. So you have to decide how to push the lever to make it hit the one person to make it hit the five people. That's pretty much right. And the question comes in many different flavors to sort of probe various aspects of morality. And at the center of the problem is whether it's morally justifiable to end the life of one person if it results in saving the lives of many more people. So, for example, if you wouldn't feel comfortable flipping the switch to move the train from hitting one person to save five, would you feel comfortable flipping the switch to save uh, that so it'll hit one person to save 20 people or 100 people or 1,000 people? Or what if you had to actually push a human in the way of the train to prevent it from hitting 20 people, right? And so, you know, there are various ways to use thought experiments to probe how people neurophysiologically respond to various hypothetical circumstances. Okay, so basically we're putting people in a bunch of hypothetical circumstances that are only slightly different. And we're seeing what environmental changes result in a different response. And this is sort of an indication of their underlying political traits, right? Yeah, that, that's what we're talking about here. And, and those um, types of thought experiments are super relevant to studies of the relationships between neuroscience and politics. Right. I mean, it seems super relevant. Yeah. So, um, and I feel like you know, talking about how different brain regions 
different brain reactions to various stimuli predict for political traits is definitely worth um, chatting about in the future, right? Um, but but anyways, yeah, su super politically relevant experiments were being conducted, including things like racial perception and moral judgment, uh, correlating with you know patterns of activation in different brain regions. And eventually, the first conference for social cognitive neuroscience happens in two thousand and one. Wow, so that wasn't that long ago. Right, and and so Schreiber describes it as a bit of like a Tower of Babel-like collection of academics from multiple disciplines that have difficulty communicating with one another. Okay, that's a weird reference. <laughs> yeah, and so, you know, they're talking about fields that range from economics and neuroscience to primatology and anthropology. And so moving forward, and I really appreciate this acknowledgement, papers from Elizabeth Phelps and Laura Thomas cautioned against a temptation to suspect that studies that were using the new technologies that we're talking about here, right, um, they caution against talking about them as more accurate than the sociological or psychological studies that preceded them. Uh, but yeah, anyways, funny enough, as I was reading through these papers, I realized that one of the names that came up was vaguely familiar. Ooh, are we about to hear about one of your professors? <laughs> kind of. So I'm reading through, uh, you know, Shriver's 2017 review, and I come across the name Michael Spezio, and I have some dark, dark memories. Ooh, sounds ominous <laughs> <laughs> yeah and so to be clear you know i've become a huge a huge stickler when it comes to neuroanatomy like um when i help my pi or my you know my boss or my mentor on publications or grant submissions or you know when it comes to the undergrads who work in our lab i've inadvertently come to have a bit of a reputation when it comes to anatomical precision is there a way to make that clear to people who aren't working in your lab? <laughs> I mean, sort of. So, um, you know, for people who are in biology and have an interest in neuroanatomy, it can be summed up in my concern to distinguish the paranigral subnucleus of the ventral tegmental area from the interpeduncular nucleus. Oh, yeah. I definitely recognize the name of that. The Interpeduncular inter, 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 <laughs> nucleus. That's right. So, so, yeah, these are parts of the brain that are like next door neighbors, you know, just a few microns away from each other. Okay, that's super duper close to each other. Uh, like, I imagine just a few neurons apart from each other, right? I yeah. mean, mm -hmm. given that we're talking about microns. That's exactly right. And and so, anyways, you know, I'm I'm reading through these papers and I come to the name Michael Spezio, who evidently contributed fMRI research to understand how people react to candidates who lose elections. Which is pretty relevant to neuropolitics. For sure. And how did Spezio elicit, elicit dark memories? Well, so uh, Michael Spezio... Um, was my cognitive neuroscience professor. Oh, I see. You guys go way back. And I assume <laughs> you did super well in his class, right? Given how you hold undergrads such a high standard? <laughs> that was actually my worst part of intro neuroscience. <laughs> Shocking. Right, I know. But, but in my defense, the level of anatomy is a bit different, and I don't force the undergrads to memorize the brain regions under pressure. Sure. No, no, seriously, I don't. But but anyways, um, so Spezio was among the folks that who, who pushed the field forward, contributing some of the research that's relevant to what's become neuropolitics. Some of the other contributions were like how people react to the faces of politicians, or how we can predict the political party affiliations of people based solely on small pictures of people's faces. Which we totally discussed in that What's in a Face episode. It Exactly. And other questions like how liberals and conservatives exhibit different patterns of brain activity in things like gambling tasks or exposure to disgusting stimuli. And a group at the University of Nebraska got to the point where they could classify people by measuring their brain activ activity after being exposed to just one single provocative image. That's also pretty re reminiscent of our last conversation about how facial perception seems to affect how we gravitate towards certain candidates over others. Absolutely. And, and actually, this research out of Nebraska has um, similarly disconcerting results regarding how predictable our preferences are when it comes to candidate choices. Yeah, that was pretty creepy. And uh, there was a group that showed, uh, I guess they showed that they could predict which political affiliation 
a candidate claimed based simply on a picture of their face. For sure. And, and you know, we could go on, right? And, and maybe we should do another politics discussion, uh, or at least on neuropolitics um, in general. Um, like, uh, last thing, Colin Firth commissioned. So, wait, wait, Colin Firth? Like, the Colin Firth that I know? Yeah, Colin Firth, like the actor. Like the guy from Bridget Jones' Diary? That's right. And the King's Speech? Yeah. And Kingsman? Yeah, that's that's the one. <laughs> it's that Colin Firth. <laughs> so, so he commissioned a study on politics and, and the brain. What? I mean, what? <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's super cool. And I, I, I assume the research was published in a peer-reviewed journal, right? It absolutely was. Wow. It would be so cool if there were more actors in positions like he is, you know, who would do things like this. Yeah, right? I mean, you know, there's actually another whole conversation about the advantages and disadvantages of a system like that. Okay, but we can't get sidetracked again. Okay, yes. Um, so there have been a bunch of studies that explore how certain patterns of brain activity correlate with and potentially explain why people tend to prefer certain candidates over others or why people respond to very similar um, current events in super different ways. And there's, there's really a ton of more to get into. And we should definitely do another episode on how people who identify as conservative or liberal respond in these types of tests. Yeah, I, I think so. And uh, like there, there's so much more to talk about here. But but yeah, to get down to brass tacks, exactly how heritable or to be more specific, how inheritable are all of these predispositions? Which, to put the question another way, how much of a person's predisposition to a particular political trait is genetically inherited? <laughs> and how much is basically environmentally acquired through your life experience? <laughs> that was a lot of alliteration. Person's political, person's predisposition to particular political trait. <laughs> Perfect. <Okay. laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, but, but yeah, that's exactly it. And so this is perhaps obviously a tough nature versus nurture question to even try and answer, right? Politics is, by most definitions, intrinsically external. Of course, you know, there's a deep pool of definitions into which we can dive here. Ooh, I bet there are papers that even define politics in ways that are politically influenced right yeah exactly so so to be um technically accurate and you know uh, so to be technically accurate the word politics is derived from a greek word that refers to relating to other citizens and i sort of wish i could have a conversation with my colleague um in, in a partner lab who's actually from greece but but anyways i feel like a more practical definition of america would involve something like the power to influence the behavior of other people I mean, it seems pretty all-encompassing. Yeah, so in our likely futile effort to avoid a particularly partisan definition, let's go with something super general, which, you know, more importantly, um, was used in one of these studies, the power to influence the social and economic behavior of others. And then political ideology is the philosophy that guides this power or influence, ranging from support for traditional values and the status quo to favoring change towards um, as egalitarian a society as possible. And to be clear to my fellow politics dork friends, I know that there are other definitions of politics. I don't think we should go there. Yeah. Seems like something for a politics podcast. (laughs) Exactly. A political politics podcast. (laughs) Exactly. Okay. So I think we've done enough defining and highlighting the caveats. Let's get to it. Okay, I agree. But there's one last thing that we should explore, um, but we'll be able to get, to get into genetics um, a little bit before we dive into the heritability of political traits. And that's psychology's big five. Big five? Like there's the big three, the big four, <laughs> and now a big five. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, it sounds like something you'd see on a BuzzFeed list or something. I mean, it kind of is. Like, in fact, I wouldn't be surprised if um, BuzzFeed or other like aggregators like BuzzFeed might have put an online test that's essentially just based on the big five. Okay. So what are we talking about here? Okay. So we're talking about five different traits that a theory in psychology suggests characterizes people's personalities. And so they are openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. And like many domains of biology, there's an acronym to help you remember them. OCEAN. Oh, nice. Okay. So OCEAN, O-C-E-A-N, is supposed to be able to characterize someone's personality. That's right. They're the big five. And I should note that there are other models to explain personality in psychology. This just happens to be one of the most widely discussed. But similarly to how um, researchers have been interested in just how heritable political traits are, there have been studies that do two things that are useful to us in this effort. One is trying to identify just how inheritable scores on the big five are. Like whether you inherit predispositions to certain levels of openness or extroversion or whatever. Right, right, exactly. And, and then the second is how psychology's big five, um, people's scores on the ocean scale, in other words, how that translates to political traits. Okay, so if someone is very open but has a low conscientiousness score, measuring if they're more conservative or more liberal. That's exactly right. And by the way, that is actually how they tend to pan out. Wait, what do you mean? So people who score higher on openness but lower on conscientiousness tend to test as a liberal? Yeah, pretty much. Huh, wow. Yeah. So, um, I mean, of course, you know, there are a ton of caveats that we need to explore. Like we're talking about percentages and predispositions that aren't always accurate for everyone, of course. And that terms like liberal and conservative can mean different things in different countries. And this is a whole other podcast topic, really. But but yeah, studies have shown that particular there are p- particular relationships between how people score on the big five and how they tend to score on political trait tests. Very cool. Definitely worth discussing in a future episode. Yeah, agreed. But um, so anyways, uh, researchers have tended to hypothesize that most of these things, things like like political traits, would be almost entirely, if not just entirely, non-heritable. Well, I said earlier that that would be my instinct, that Mm -hmm. the environment pretty much determines a person's political persuasion. Yeah. And so and there have been a handful of studies into the heritability of political traits. And so, you know, there are a few reviews of these studies, and many of them make the point that Many political scientists don't very seriously consider a role potentially played by non-environmental influences on why people act politically in the ways that they do. Like political genetic factors, or, or at least biological. <laughs> right, that's what they're arguing. And so, so, for example, in 2005, a group did um, a comparison between the attitudes of monozygotic and dizygotic twins. So, in other words, identical and fraternal twins. Yes, which, to be specific... Um, we're talking about comparing sets of twins who are either born from one sperm and one egg that becomes two embryos that use the same placenta to develop into two separate people, or who are born from basically separate fertilization events within the same belly, which, you know, with, with two separate sperm fertilizing two separate eggs, which develop separately within the same belly. Okay, so fraternal or dizygotic dizygotic thank you twins can be uh, a boy and a girl right i mean while identical twins or monozygotic are always of the same sex exactly and so the most important aspect of this for us in these studies is that monozygotic twins are about as close to genetically identical as two separate humans can be while dizygotic twins are genetically somewhat different but importantly both mono and dizygotic twins tend to develop in extremely similar environments yeah, like starting from the womb. It, exactly. 
And that's a, a super important consideration, actually. So these people were exposed to precisely the same maternal diet, same mother, of course. And, and so their mother was exposed to the same environmental pollutants and same levels of stress or emotional states and, and, and stressors and, and so on. So about as identical of an environment that can be for two separate humans. Exactly. And that enables us um, to control for a lot of environmental factors when asking a question about what's different in a person that makes them behave in unique ways. So a simplified way to ask the kinds of questions that are asked here is, why is it that some people prefer vanilla ice cream while others prefer strawberry? Uh, because strawberry is the superior ice cream, <laughs> of course. Right. So, so well, one potential answer might be that it is environmental, that, you know, perhaps some people tend to be exposed um, to the flavor profile of a strawberry, like by picking wild strawberries or whatever when they're super young. But there's always the possibility that some people have a gene for an olfactory receptor. Or a smell receptor. That's right. So, so a receptor that binds to things in the environment that we perceive as being strawberry-ish. And so maybe some people have this gene for a certain form of the receptor that causes them to experience higher dopaminergic responses to being just exposed to strawberry because of this specific gene they've inherited. So they're just naturally predisposed to enjoying that olfactory sensation. And so no matter when they tasted strawberry, they were going to love it. It didn't have to be a childhood experience. Yeah. All right. Cool. Got it. And so, you know, one way to determine if the source of this is genetic or if it's environmental is to try and compare people who have identical genomes with different environmental exposure or they have identical environmental exposure but different genomes. So we could compare identical twins who might have been raised in different parts of the world with only one of the twins ever having tasted strawberry. And if mm -hmm. the one that tasted strawberry as a kid tend to prefer them more uh, than their genetically identical twin who hadn't tried strawberries as a kid, then that might be the case where there was an environmental cause for that preference. Exactly. And then if we compare people who were raised in basically the same environment, raised by the same parents, maybe grew up in the same house in the same part of the world, but they're just typical siblings who have different genomes, if it turns out that some of them have a preference for strawberries and then some don't, then if the only thing that's different about them is different genes, then that may be what causes the preference for strawberry. Well put. Yeah, nicely nicely done. So, so you know, we can test or we can use that basic experimental design to ask those kinds of questions, but focus on political traits instead of ice cream flavor preferences. A slightly more important set of questions. I mean, I, I suppose. I don't know. It seems like you tend to be pretty assertive when it comes to ice cream flavors. Well, like I said, there is a superior choice when it comes to ice cream. <laughs> okay. Well, so as we said, comparing monozygotic or identical to dizygotic or fraternal twins helps us to design experiments, just like your ice cream experiment, right? So monozygotic twins allow us to control for genetic influences because they have the same genes. Comparing monozygotic twins to dizygotic twins, all of whom should share environmental influences with each other, allows us to control for the environment and also ask if having slightly different genes might explain differences in various behaviors. But isn't it hard to find that many identical and fraternal twins to work with? I mean, I assume they're a pretty significant minority of the population. Yeah, you know, I had the same question. Um, and of course, there have always been twins, but it turns out that the percentage of the population who are twins has been steadily increasing, and it seems to have been doing so quite a bit since the 1980s. And this is for a variety of reasons that aren't particularly germane to this discussion, but suffice it to say that there have been enough types of twins to do these types of studies. And fortunately, studies have worked with twins from not only the United States, but also other countries, which helps us to at least control, at least try to control for regional and cultural effects. Unfortunately, though, there isn't an ideal distribution of cultures. 
Right. That was my next question. So if we have mono and dizygotic twins from all over the world, which countries are we talking about here? Well, um, so there are a few reviews of studies that we're talking about here, but but um, in terms of the pretty large ones, twins have been drawn from the United States, Canada, Australia, and Germany. Okay, I see what you mean by not having an optimal range of cultures. <laughs> yeah. uh, but you know, that's actually better than just drawing twins from a single country. Yeah, that's right. And there are um, other studies that draw from like specific states um, and demographic groups within the United States, you know, like a data set from within Virginia, which is obviously limited to just one region of the world. Um, or, you know, other, you know, demographic groups like um, from the uh, AARP. Which for people outside of the U.S., the AARP is a group focused on the well-being of people who have retired. Yeah. So it stands for, or I don't know, at least it used to stand for the American Association for Retired Persons. Which will tend to select for um, the other, the elderly, basically. Yeah, that's right. Um but yeah, so so um, that's what we're talking about here. A- anyways, um, so studies will use question sets like the Wilson-Patterson Attitude Inventory, uh, which is basically just um, showing participants around fifty items, which are you know can be like terms like quote nudist camps, pajama parties, horoscope, disarmament, computer music, patriotism, and death penalty. <laughs> Many of which definitely have political overtones, to say the least. Yeah, and I mean, some of them are more overt than others, but that's right. You know, some of them have, have very overt political overtones. Others, for example, are phrases like school prayer, uh, property tax, moral majority, capitalism, astrology, pacifism, unions, censorship, and, uh, and then reach into more overtly political, you know, words like Democrats, Republicans, abortion, socialism. Right. Definitely much more overtly political terminology there. Yeah. And so so um, this is just one kind of political attitude um, inventory. You know, there's there are others, but they're basically pursuing diff- uh, or similar things. Right. And so when comparing mono and dizygotic twins on these scores, researchers found that um, genetics accounted for quite a bit of the variation, meaning that the genes people inherited could explain quite a bit of people's political traits. So in other words, the group was surprised at how much nature, rather than nurture, guided the ways people responded to political tests. That's right. And on this paper in particular, um, the influence of environmental factors exceeded the influence of genetics on only four of the 28 tested traits. Oh, okay. So most of the traits that were tested tended to have a greater influence of genetics. So yeah, heredity scores were higher. That's right. And and. Um, there were some other really cool studies that, that also include tests of not only either identical or fraternal twins, but also their other family members and spouses. Pretty cool that they could include so many peripheral people. Right, yeah. And and they also scored things like like just how opinionated people were. And um, things like best flavor of ice cream, I imagine. <laughs> right, not quite as important as that. But um, so it turned out that genetic heredity seemed to account for quite a bit of how opinionated people were, while environmental factors accounted for far less. And so so here's a quote from, from the study. In this particular case, genotype did not make people behave a certain way. Rather, it influenced the, the extent to which their behavior was contingent on the environment. And this pattern like, likely will apply to all sorts of other human activities, whether the behavior of interest is depression, cooperation, fear response, or susceptibility to drug addiction, some people are more sensitive than others to particular features of their environment. And genetics, far from determining behavior, influences its susceptibility. Right. So genes make people more or less likely to respond to, to things in a certain way. Yeah, I mean, exactly. So, so it, it's also important to note that when we're trying to combine the work of multiple groups, we 
also need to make sure that the way the studies or surveys you know, or, or experiments were done are able to be compared. Like they need to be at least somewhat similar. We can't just compare the findings of a group that did like the equivalent of a Twitter survey to a group that sequenced the epigenetic markers, you know, and compared mono and diazygotic twins who grew up in different environments, right? Because they're basically completely different types of experiments. Right. And, and so, you know, when we review a bunch of these types of experiments where, you know, we're comparing things like degree of political participation or, you know, political interest or, or social participation among thousands of, you know, the two types of twins, we do tend to see a broad effect of genetics on these aspects of political behaviors. So you mentioned three different things here, right? That's right. So political participation and political interest makes sense, I think. Uh, but is social participation what it sounds like? Yeah, so, I mean, social participation is things like volunteering in local organizations. I mean, do they literally measure things like that? <laughs> yeah, so in one particular study, they asked um, questions. So for social participation, they asked six questions, asking participants to rate the extent to which they participate in um, these groups on a scale of one to four. And so we're talking about things like sports associations or clubs, choir or music groups, uh, church or religious organizations, trade unions or professional networks or, you know, student council type organizations or voluntary firefighters or and rescue groups. Right. And then, you know, local historical associations, you know, things things like those. OK, got so basically organizations that are devoted to a particular aspect of society. Yeah, right. Exactly. And so um, there were similar types of questions for political participation and political interest. And what did they find? Well, it turned out that their findings corroborated previous findings that there were or there was a significant role played by the genome in accounting for individual differences in political participation and social and political interests with a smaller role played in social participation. Corroborated previous findings in this too. Huh. Okay. So have previous studies identified a substantial role played by genetics as well? Generally speaking, yeah. So um, so prior studies in this area tend to, far more frequently than I'd expect, identify a significant genetic contribution to political traits. And, you know, it's important to keep in mind that the connections between one gene or even a handful of genes and a behavior is very rarely simple. I mean, very rarely. Um, however, prior studies outside of political work have identified these types of links between unique genetics and unique behaviors. Okay, can you give me an example? Okay, so so um so for example, there's one gene on chromosome uh, 17. Okay, so let's go back. Uh, just put everyone on the same page. We humans have 46 chromosomes, right? 23 from each parent. That's exactly right. Um, and, and geneticists have numbered each of them, and you know there are certain genes on certain chromosomes, and the positions of those genes are the same in everyone. So you know like the gene for specific dopamine receptors or for specific enzymes in the liver or more importantly for this example for enzymes that are responsible for um, creating the serotonin transporter sometimes called CERT. Why CERT? Well yeah so it's, it's an acronym so it's S-E-R-T uh, for serotonin transporter which is this little protein that's responsible for vacuuming up serotonin molecules from the spaces between neurons making sure we don't just have a whole bunch of serotonin building up in synaptic clefts binding receptors over and over resulting in too much activation which can be pretty bad bad in what way well so something called serotonin syndrome or, or serotonin toxicity can happen which basically induces a bunch of super unpleasant and, and potentially dangerous um, things that happen, you know, things like tremors and sweating and diarrhea and seizures and even muscle damage. Um, it usually happens when people either combine drugs that ought not be combined or if they, you know, take experimental drugs or what's, per, you know, perhaps used to be called designer drugs. Yikes. Sound pre sounds pretty nasty. 
And we should definitely talk about designer drugs in the future. Mm -hmm. Um, But anyways, how does this relate to genes that explain certain behaviors? Right. So, um, you know, let's keep in mind that while the positions of those genes on certain chromosomes are always basically the same among different people, the forms of those genes can be slightly different. And what do you mean by forms? Like, okay, how, how far off am I with this analogy? So most people tend to grow hair on their heads, right? So they have hair in the same place, but people have different hair textures, right? Some have curly hair, some have thick hair, some are super straight. Is that kind of the thing we're talking about here? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's not bad. So so we're talking about alleles. Um, while we all have genes for the serotonin transporter, and that means we all have very, very similar genetic sequences that encode for this protein, there can be very minor changes in the sequences that encode for the protein that can translate to slightly different functions for that protein. Okay, wait. I have another comparison. Okay. <laughs> okay, so we all know the song Bohemian Rhapsody, of right? Of course, it's a classic. Okay. But in a p- karaoke bar, people are <laughs> likely going to sing it in different ways. Uh, yes, for sure. No one can sing like my man, Freddie Mercury. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> so it's the same words in the same sequence, but people will sing them with slightly different uh, tonality, right? <laughs> kind of like different alleles of the same song that's not bad um but, but yeah i mean i think you got the idea all right all right back to serotonin right so so it turned out that in a long-term study of new zealanders uh, kiwis right right <laughs> the long-term study of kiwis from new zealand found that certain people with a certain allele for the serotonin transporter gene were more likely to respond to high stress life events things like romantic tension or bankruptcy or the loss of a family member with major bouts of depression compared to other new zealanders with a different allele of that gene i see where you're going with this so basically these people seem completely similar and behave in same you know some some similar ways Uh, but once the environment presents them with a unique challenge their minor genetic differences result in different reactions that's what the study suggested so kiwis with a higher number of those types of life events as well as that certain allele of the serotonin transporter were more likely to exhibit depression compared to those with either a different allele of the same gene, of that gene, or a lower number of those negative life experiences. All right, so let's get back to political traits. Okay, so again, many of these researchers approached these types of studies with skepticism towards a significant role played by genetics in explaining things like political traits, and perhaps less surprisingly, uh, when they tested things like like party affiliation. Like whether someone calls themselves a Republican or Democrat. Exactly. So the results um, suggest that party identification is by far environmentally determined, and more specifically, parentally determined. Okay, so if your parents are Democrats, you're more likely to be a Democrat. Right. And that makes sense. Like, I feel that that translates to other things as well. Uh, how do you mean? Well, I would assume that people who have Methodist parents might be more likely to be Methodist than people who were born to, I don't know, Presbyterian or Mormon parents or whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And by the way, that's a whole other domain of research that explores how heritable religiosity is. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely need to save that one also for a future conversation. Yeah, um, absolutely. But um, so, you know, in the back of my mind, one of the questions I've had for a while is if there might be a role played by a dynamic called assortative mating which is the tendency for people to be drawn to other people who have particular traits beyond pure physical attraction. Right. Kind of like uh, what we're talking about, like people who are part of the same culture may be more likely to marry other members of that culture than people from other cultures. Yeah, exactly. 
And I imagine we can extend that to other things that are less, uh, you know, overt. Uh, like some people might be more likely to be attracted to men or women who are outgoing or aggressive or whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and it's those kinds of um, subtler things um, we're talking about here. And, and this is pretty important to the question of how inheritable political traits are. If the parents of a child have selected each other according to a specific trait of interest, then there's going to be less variation of that trait than we'd expect would happen just randomly. Because the parents are basically the same for that trait. And both parents, you know, if they're both conservative, for example. Yeah, exactly. And um, at least within the United States, that can also correlate with the region of the country in which people live, right? Right. Red states and blue states. Right. So there, there's something that some political scientists have called uh, uh, things like the, the great sorting or the big sort which is basically just focusing on the tendency for people who share certain political traits to tend to live near each other, either because they're born in certain areas and stay there or because they move to certain areas to seek out um, people with whom they share political values. And some of these studies explored whether there's an effect of this kind of sorting? Yes. And, and you know, intuitively, at least for me, I expected that this would be a fairly significant effect. Like, I mean, I know, I, I I probably couldn't have kids with someone with whom I completely disagree politically, right? Yeah, I can only imagine how intense those dinner conversations <laughs> would go. Yeah, exactly. But in these studies, without getting into how you know these different studies attack this question, we've been talking for, for a while already, but, but basically it, it turns out that the spouses of twins do tend to resemble each other when considering political traits. Okay, so like if the husband of one identical twin is a Republican, the husband of the other identical twin is also likely to be Republican. Right. And it's likely that when a person selects a mate who shares a political trait, the devotion to those traits can tend to deepen and become intensified. So this just further suggests that there's at least a genetic dimension that explains how people end up with the political values that they have. Right, right. So so just to, to wrap up these topics, right, it turns out that when it comes to political traits that can be tested, there seems to be a pretty significant role played by genetics inherited from parents that determines how people approach political issues. However, it also turns out that when it comes to which party a person joins, the environment plays a much bigger role in determining affiliation. So that's honestly pretty surprising. I definitely would have assumed that the environment and life experiences play a huge role and causing people to see the world in certain ways. Definitely for me too. Um, it's, it's important to keep in mind that these aren't universally true, right? And no one is reducible to a measurement of brain activity in a region or even set of regions in their brain, right? Um, and just like the rest of neuroscience, this is ongoing research and we're continuing to learn more and more. Right, of course. I mean, like, I feel like they'd be a caveat for basically all the conversations we've had. Yeah, that's true. Um, and, you know, what we're talking about are broad predispositions. You know, we're talking about trying to answer fairly simple questions like, you know, why do people respond to things in their environment in such different ways? Or, you know, how could someone possibly have beliefs in a worldview that's so completely diametrically opposed to my own? How is it that members of the same society, even members of the same family, can come to respond to, to world events in such completely divergent ways? There's kind of a cliche of the awkward Thanksgiving dinner where family members can have a tough time talking about politics because they disagree so much. Yeah, and I mean, I think the cliche um, is that, you know, extended family members can disagree pretty vehemently. And I don't know about you, but I've heard from several friends that even, you know, their siblings with whom they grew up and were raised together by the same parents in the same environments experience this as well. 
And so, you know, by asking if there's something beyond solely the environment that might explain these divergent um, reactions to similar stimuli, I mean, that's what these experiments are trying to do. Right. Of course, the environment plays a huge role in determining these things. But like in the trolley test, I guess we're talking about whether there might be a sort of brain-based explanation for why it is that some people respond to events with fear or the desire to protect themselves or their loved ones versus empathy for the victims. Right. Um, there's a whole other domain of research that explores, you know, the physiological reactions that people can have to various stimuli, particularly politically, you know, relevant events. That's obviously super relevant to this conversation. We've only just touched on it. But yeah, exactly. And in addition to understanding how people may have at least a partly hardwired predisposition to respond to these kinds of stimuli in such different ways, given what we know about how genes we inherit from our parents influence the growth of the brain, what this research is exploring is whether these predispositions can be inherited. And, you know, by the way, I feel like I should just say, you know, reading some of the studies that are published in journals that aren't focused on biology gives me a bit of concern that there's there's kind of like a hypothetical framework that supports a substantial role played by genetics that caused a bit of a bias in favor of that hypothesis among biologists. Shouldn't peer review take care of that problem? I mean, you know, ideally, but, you know, I, I was sort of thinking about it, like, to whom do you send a paper like these, right? Um, you know, do you send it to biologists who study autism or political scientists who study the history of authoritarianism in Europe? Okay, I see your point. It's kind of a problem that calls back to our initial conversation. How do you mean? Like uh, like neural law or maybe even neuroeconomics. There just aren't that many neuroscientists who are trained enough to see the flaws in these types of studies. Yeah, yeah, that, that's sort of, that's what I'm thinking. And, and, you know, because neuroscience has always been, you know, from its inception, an interdisciplinary field, integrating physics and philosophy and chemistry and psychology and, and you know, uh, more recently genetics, um, from its beginning, it's not unusual to have someone that studied things like law or computer science or engineering work on questions about the role that brain imaging should play in criminal sentencing, right? Or how artificial intelligence might fundamentally transform society, or even how genetic differences may translate to behavioral predispositions for, um, you know, psychiatric conditions. But when it comes to politics and neuroscience, there just aren't nearly as many crossovers. So maybe they should just send them to you. <laughs> it's, well, I'll be considering that for postdocs. <laughs> <laughs> okay, by the way, we should definitely talk about the role that brain imaging plays in criminal sentencing. That sounds like some minority report stuff right there. Oh, yeah, for definitely, for sure. <laughs> okay, but yeah, it makes sense, particularly since politics, history, and political science are all basically careers that people can devote their lives to. And of course, the said can be the same could be said for neuroscience it's going to be a while before there are enough people educated in both fields to criticize each other's work totally you know basically to make for an effective peer review process yeah exactly um but anyways yeah i, I definitely came across some papers that were worded in ways that were honestly kind of irresponsible and you know that might be because political distinctions are becoming fairly amplified and, and language is increasingly identified with either you know, the right or the left, but it strikes me as pretty critical to be careful about how these studies are interpreted. Do you mean that the scientists themselves are interpreting data irresponsibly? Well, I mean, you know, far be it for me to, to make judgments on, on a whole discipline, right? I'm just a PhD candidate, right? Um, but when I read these studies, it's not like they were published decades ago. They were published in like 2015 and even more recently. But yeah, so, so here's just one quote um, fr from an abstract. And I guess it's worth acknowledging that while a lot of research is behind a paywall, which means that people have to pay subscription fees that are often surprisingly high, higher than your 
standard newspaper oh, for, for example you know, for sure we're talking about like over 30 dollars per article right not even per issue like or per year it's per article okay but yeah the the article abstracts are used to basically summarize the paper so scientists who are looking through all the tons and tons of papers they could potentially read can get an idea of what they should spend their time reading and those are freely available anyone can read abstracts anyway so you were going to quote something from this <laughs> irresponsible abstract. And who wrote this paper? Oh, you know, I don't think it's a good idea to get too specific here. <laughs> Come on, Ian, name names. <laughs> yeah, probably not the greatest idea. A- anyway, so here's um, the sentence that struck me as being at least slightly irresponsible in how it's worded. Quote, the conservative complex may be damaged with brain disease, sometimes leading to a pathological liberal shift or a reduced tendency to conservatism in political ideology. End quote. Oof. Yeah, I can definitely see how that could be improved. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, imagine you're someone who's interested in advancing a completely racist agenda, right? And you're looking for, you know, validation from outside of your community, right? And you'll take it from wherever you can get it. Right. Like someone who has a political agenda, they're trying to build a framework for it. So they look to see if research done by scientists might have anything they can use. And they see that there's this recent study that describes how brain damage leads to a change (laughs) towards liberal ideology. Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. I mean, even within this study, not only do the findings refute that claim, but the entire framework from the study refutes the claim. However, none of that would matter to the vast majority of people who don't happen to subscribe to the Journal of Neuropsychiatry and Clinical Neurosciences. And I mean, even though the abstract for the paper would come up uh, in a Google search, I mean, do people outside of science even subscribe to a journal like this one? Right. I mean, that's a really good point. And, And so, you know, this is the kind of journal that I'd imagine is mostly read by people in biomedical science at some level, either in research or in the clinic. But again, you know, as you suggest... The abstract for the paper is freely available, and that's what I quoted. And I'm not exactly an astute media critic, but I've noticed that you don't really need to accurately represent a set of findings to make strong claims, you know, claims that you intend to lead to policy, to make those claims, you know, very vehement. So in this case, it seems like the abstract is kind of acting like clickbait. (laughs) I mean, I don't. I mean, that's interesting. I I don't think that's what they intended with that language. I think they were being... I, I. honestly think they were completely innocent and they just this was the most concrete way to articulate what they were doing um but hey i mean it got me to focus on it so <laughs> who's to say okay so to be more specific um going back we're talking about people who say things uh like a certain political ideology is a brain disease right i mean i know that you encounter questions like this all the time yeah that that's exactly what i'm talking about and and so you know if you're doing a study that's interested in identifying brain networks associated with you know where a person falls along a continuum of conservatism to liberalism or, or whatever it might be i feel like it's important to be very specific about what you're identifying I mean, would it be useful to break down the claims in the study to identify where the problem is? I mean, I think it definitely would be worth discussing on a future podcast episode. But but I promise that um, we'd be going on a much longer conversation than I think either of us are comfortable um, exploring right now. But suffice it to say that, you know, incomplete statements in this domain of research are absolutely ripe for exploitation by people with incredibly perverse interests. Gotcha. I mean, I, I, I see what you mean. It's worth being careful with how data are interpreted. If a misinterpretation could be exploited by people that want to, uh, I guess, warp the data to suit their own agendas. Exactly. All right. 
let's call it an episode there. That was a long one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess I could have done a better job narrowing the conversation down to just one or two interesting studies, but it's, you know, it's a super interesting topic to me. And frankly, a lot of the studies were, were surprising to me. Yeah. So as you said earlier, it's a fairly new field and you'll have to update us if studies come out that strongly contradict this perspective on the role of genetics in political traits. Will do. And we'll have to talk about all the studies that show different patterns of brain activity in people who fall on different sides of the political compass. That sounded pretty interesting. Oh, it, it was pretty hard to avoid bringing up during this conversation. Um, it's definitely very cool and, and arguably easier to study, but, but yeah, for, for another day. And if you've made it this far, everyone, we'd love it if you'd be nice enough to leave us an iTunes rating. Yes. Thanks for listening, everyone. So, Ian. Yes, Bo. How many scientists does it take to create an effective peer review process? <laughs> uh, do you want an honest answer? Or 